This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. It's me, Stephanie Butnick, joined by my co-host, tablet editor at large, Liel Leibovitz. Lighting a fire in the studio for Lug Baomer today, baby. Please keep that fire contained. Please keep it safe. We have a lot of equipment in here. But before we light everything on fire, we have a lot going on on today's episode. We'll bring you an interview with Jewish insiders Gabby Deutsch, who tells us about her recent investigative series about the murder of Rabbi Philip Rabinowitz of Kesher Israel Congregation in Washington, D.C. nearly 40 years ago, a murder which remains unsolved. This is one of the freakiest stories I've heard. It's like straight out of Netflix, like true crime. Yeah, it's, it's an really, amazing, it's, amazing story. It's wild. And Gabby tells us about how she sort of uncovered the story behind the story and how it affected the, the congregants and the community to this day. We're also bringing you the second installment of our series, The Archive, where we explore the fascinating collection of the National Library of Israel. This week, Liel is perusing the 12th century manuscripts of Sir Moshe ben Maimon, better known as... Maimonides. Maimonides. Uh, his his death is is not a mystery. It, it has been solved. Uh, but let me tell you, you'll hear it in my voice. Holding a freaking Rambam, like a Maimonides, handwritten Maimonides, like actual in your hands. That's uh, that's a lot. We have a great episode today. But first, let's talk about this fire. What is it with Jews and fire? We just burned all our chametz. Is this all the fire we do, or is there a lot more? I feel like what is it with Jews and fire would be a great <laughs> title for a book. No, What's this the is deal. I got to tell you, having grown up in Israel, this is the one holiday I miss most. Israel does Lag Omer perfectly. Mm-hmm. Americans, for very obvious reasons, do not have you know clear and free spaces to start major bonfires in which children run unsupervised with you know simulated weapons. It's kind of an amazing tradition. What is Lag Baomer? I have to be honest. I learned about Lag Baomer when I got to Tablet. So for uh, those of us who do not work at a Jewish magazine or were not raised around the fires in Israel, can you give us a little brief? I could give you a little brief. So it is the 33rd day of the 50-day Omer count. It is a day in which the plague that killed 24,000 of Rabbi Akiva's students came to a halt, which is why we're celebrate. <laughs> you know, there had to be some trauma in there. Can't mm-hmm. just be a happy day. It's like, well, of course, you know, in contemporary parlance, so a lot of great things that happen around that day, including in Kabbalistic tradition, we we celebrate Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who we believe is the father of Kabbalah in, in Mount Meron. But more quotidianly than that, we light huge bonfires to celebrate. And growing up in Israel in the 80s, it was perfectly acceptable to let children stay the entire night by the fire <laughs> on, on their own. They're practicing no adult, for Shavuot. No adult supervision. It's kind of was an amazing thing. And the other amazing thing is that for many, many, many years, until very recently, not only did you build a bonfire, but you also burned someone in effigy. <laughs> Meaning you made either a Hitler puppet or like kind of like a general terrorist about to kill a Jew puppet. And you burned it, which is kind of an amazing way to sort of, you know, kick out the jam type of situation. Really, really keeping it real. I also have to assume that this is the day everyone gets shorn. They get haircuts, and beard trims, because you, I have to say, you look very quaffed. You look trimmed. And... I, have, I have waited for this. Okay, so what's the deal? So during the Omer, you do not cut your hair? According to rabbinic tradition, because we mourn for the loss of Rabbi Akiva's 24,000 students. We practice mournful practices, right? Which includes not listening to live music, which includes not cutting your hair or shaving your beard. Are there rabbinic dispensations? Of course there are. But 
on Lag Baomer, many of us have a custom of going and getting a nice, uh, a nice trim, including in some cases, you know, some parents choose to not cut their young boy's hair until they turn three and then cut it on Lag Baomer and do a nice upsharen, uh, which is a great Jewish tradition that is thankfully still with us. Speaking of, of growth of life, we have our new host joining us at the end of this month. I think what we played last week may have given it away for people. That Torah portion was like crystal clear, crisp audio. You could totally hear who it was. But in case our listeners have not figured it out, should we, should we give them some more clues? So here's a peek into the world of unorthodox. Yesterday, we delighted by spending the day with our new host. And we asked our host, to share some trivia, to share some really intimate details that really only big fans of them would know about them. And they gave us two nuggets that I think really captures this host's personality. (laughs) Stephanie, what is the first thing that we now know about our soon-to-be third host? So they were thrown out of two high school varsity soccer matches for fighting. Ah! I, I don't know, that might give it away. Then what's what's number two? Number two, says the mystery host. Mystery music, please. I can balance a broomstick on my nose. I mean, leading with a nose, <laughs> very Jewish, very on, okay. on key. Question, question. When I first read this, I was picturing it horizontally balanced, but I think this is a vertical oh, balance up. This is a vertical up. straight up. The good news is that we will make sure this host performs this for us. We will like we have to test that this is in fact true. As of course radio is exactly the medium. Exactly. Yes. yes. But but the host saved the best for last. He or she shared one really kind of touching, sweet, intimate detail. What is number three on the trivia list? This person loves roller coasters, but, but they are afraid of Ferris wheels. <laughs> I have to tell you, I completely agree with that. A roller coaster has purpose. It has motion. You understand what you're doing. A Ferris wheel kind of feels like you're just at the mercy of Hashem. You're just like hanging between heaven and so- earth. Okay. Like, why would you do that? This to me is the ultimate like Jewish, not Jewish. Like, but I have to say, Ferris wheel at the mercy of Hashem. Like, that is so freaking Jewish. You're just going up and down. You go down to go up. You go up to go That's down. Right. It's either Buddhist so, so or Ferris, Jewish. So Ferris wheels, exactly. It's a Dharma, Dharma yes, wheel of exactly. time. So, so Ferris wheels, Jewish roller coasters, goyish. I don't know. There's something here. Write us. Tell us. It's time to start yelling at this new host. So just, you know, all these takes just and just, just hit us up. Meanwhile, Stephanie, there's a lot of news to discuss. Yes. Um, before we even get to the news of the worldwide Jews, I went to a great wedding this weekend. Number one listener of the show, my mom's cousin, Janet Slifer. Her daughter, Laura, got married to Adam. It was wonderful. It was so much fun. It was the most beautiful wedding, so full of love and just amazing. Like, you know, when you get just get to know a couple so well by like the stories that are told about them and you just like you, you just have such a good sense of them. I, I really, really loved it. But the best part was that they were doing a horror. It was an unbelievable horror, but they they put them up in the chairs and Janet ran up to me, the mother of the bride, and she was like, the chair dance, <laughs> the Jewish chair dance. And I'm like, yes, the Jewish chair dance. We've discussed it before. The, the fact chair that dance, that's the, what, most, the most underrated <laughs> 80s disco single. <laughs> but that's just like the, the thing that people know about Jewish weddings, the chair dance. And it made me laugh. And I, I mentioned this to our colleague, Tanya Singer, and she had a spicy wedding take, which is that 
just as you say the bagel is like our gift to the world and mm-hmm. is no longer ours, it's just Correct. of America, so too has the chuppah gone Gentile. It's gone global. It is now referred to as like the wedding arch. I've seen it on Martha the ca- Stewart. The canopy. The wedding canopy. I want to hear from people. Are, are you not Jewish? Did you have a chuppah? Like, are there people like, it serves such a, such a universal aesthetic, yes. right? Like it's so, such an obvious, plus like, it's like easy to grasp spiritual meaning or you just like the flowers above you it's like it's it's actually the perfect thing and we almost stumbled into a pinterest scenario by just like this idea of the the wedding chuppah being open on all sides i have feel this way about the whore and the chair dance as well i feel like i've seen a chair dance in several non-jewish weddings i've been to i I mean it's kind of incorporating these uh it's it's so funny because shtetl chic shtetl chic for sure but it's it's such an expression of joy the horror and especially the chair the chair dance part because bride and groom go up and then you know what what happened at this wedding the mothers of the bride and groom went up together right mother mother machatunum like and they grab the the cloth they hold it together and it's this joining of families. And then the fathers go up. And sometimes, you know. And whoever wrestles the cloth away gets to have the kids for Thanksgiving. <laughs> but, you know, this this idea of, this of joining of families, there is like the Jewish wedding is amazing. I will say this about, about Jewish rituals. Rituals are so funny because you think that you would know exactly how to feel like, oh, it's a funeral. You feel sad. Oh, it's a wedding. You feel happy. But actually translating these really complicated, wild, fierce emotions into practice, into what am I supposed to do now, is really, really difficult. I think the genius of Judaism is that it gives you very clear instructions. Someone dies, like, here, you do a shiva. Like, here's how you process it. And the same with the weddings. Like, don't be like, oh, we're here. They're drinks. They're past hors d'oeuvres. Everyone just be happy. It's like, no, 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 no. First of all, there's the bedeckin. Then there's this. Then there's, you know, the chair dance. Like, everything goes according to some kind of amazing script that tells you what you have to do, which kind of helps you channel your feelings in a beautiful way. And yeah, I do think that American weddings are increasingly becoming more and more Jewish. All right, Jake, who write in unorthodox at tabamag.com. Tell us your takes on Jewish weddings. Liel, any major Jewish milestones any, coming any, up any in your, Yeah, any simchas we should know about. So we are not yet at the wedding stage, but we are very much in the bat mitzvah stage of life. Our daughter Lily is about to turn 12, and many of her friends are turning 12 and therefore are celebrating their bat mitzvahs. And this Sunday, I had the pleasure of being invited to one of these bat mitzvahs. It was so wonderful and such a joyous event. And the, the kids are... First of all, I didn't know this, like... There is now a practice in bat mitzvahs in which all the kids give speeches. Like all of them. (laughs) It's incredible. They take the microphone and first of all, they sound like if I had to give a speech when I was 12, I was like, dude, you're cool, I guess. Like I would have been a complete, you know, blabbering idiot. These girls take the microphones like, Naomi. I remember the first day I said, it's like, it's like a yarn, like a sea captain, like yarn. It was like, and then you came and you said, I will be your friend. It's like, I am crying and laughing and this is incredible. But all this joy could not contain or mitigate the intense terror that I felt. This is part two in our installment of Liel being really relatable to other human beings. Uh, <laughs> the terror that I felt at being at a nightclub. The bat mitzvah was at like a club in Midtown. But like rented out only the bat mitzvah crew. Only bat mitzvah crew. Beautiful, great DJ. Everything was terrific. Food was amazing. But here's the thing. 
I walk into this place and I immediately get sort of like, you know, Vietnam style, like post-traumatic stress disorder from my own misspent youth as no surprises there. I was not what you would call a well-loved young adult. Uh, Therefore, this kind of scene of being in clubs and partying was 1000% not my thing. I dread everything about this experience. I don't like loud music. I'm like this great cantankerous. Yeah, a lot, lot of fun at parties. I don't like loud music. I don't like dancing. I can't dance. I try to so many times. Like I literally, my body does not move in this way. It's like a Lego person. I can only move like my legs and like tiny little increments up and down. But those, it's head. perfect for holding a drink, those little Lego hands. That's okay. So that's exactly <laughs> my point. In clubs, I then have only two things I know what to do. One is look really surly, stand in the corner and and be so unpleasant that no one would ever come up and talk to me, which is a natural defense mechanism. It's yes, like, like yes, a porcupine, yes. you know, quilt. And then the second uh, thing is to drink copiously. Now, neither of these things are socially acceptable as a parent <laughs> at a kid's bat mitzvah. I yeah. can't get hammered. Yeah, it's true. Because it's also like 12 o'clock. The, it's four, but okay. still, you know, my daughter, all her friends and all their parents are yeah, there. Yeah. No, not and, a, great. and I can't look like I'm having a terrible time because A, I'm not. I'm surrounded by people I like. And, and B, like you don't want to be that guy. So I'm standing there. I genuinely, I genuinely don't know what to do right now. How many times as an adult are you in a position when you say like, I actually do not know how I'm supposed to behave right now. So what'd you end up doing? What'd you I, go with? I ended up really just marveling at the kids. Like, first of all, there's this raw energy. Like if you connected them to, you know, wires, they could light up, you know, half of New York for three <laughs> days just with all the jumping. And second of all, just, you know, enjoying this opportunity to be together with a real community of people who genuinely love each other and 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 seek each other's company, which is so easy to forget with all the stress of producing this big life events and like all the, you know, production that goes into it, that it's really just about us hanging out with people we love. News of the Jews N-O-T-J News of the Jews uh-huh. All right, news of the Jews. This first one, Liel, this happens in your homeland, specifically Ben Gurion Airport. I imagine that is where you were birthed out of that that airport. We're, we're all born. It's it's also the country's <laughs> only hospital. We're all born in the airport. <laughs> you just come out of the conveyor belt. That's where the babies come out. That's exactly right. And then we have a choice: so do we want to leave or do we want to stay? That's where we, they put us. Uh, but but this week, Ben Gurion Airport. Even look, Ben Gurion is an airport used to seeing a lot of crazy stuff. A couple weeks back, you may remember a couple of Belgians left their child. Oh, and, I forgot about that. To like, this is an airport that had seen a lot of crazy stuff. I go still down. haven't gotten my luggage that I like six years ago from the fight to get all the luggage off the belt. So like I still haven't gotten mine. So. Well, speaking of luggage, <laughs> Stefan, this week saw one of the most amazing luggage related stories in the history of this storied airport. And I read from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. At least two American couples have been caught by Israeli customs attempting to smuggle a total of more than 650 pounds of, I'm going to let you guess. Mm, drugs. Drugs. Take another guess. Um, 650 pounds of. Electronic equipment for their iPads, relatives. Athletes. Great. Take one more guess. <laughs> uh, Pokemon. Okay. The correct answer is 650 pounds 
I can't even read this with a straight face, of fruit roll-ups into Israel as the country experiences a dire shortage of the snack due to a TikTok craze. A video posted on Tuesday by Mako, an Israeli news website, appears to show a customs official at Ben-Gurion International Airport sifting through at least three open suitcases, each filled with hundreds of the colorful sugary treats. An American accented voice off screen in a mix of Hebrew and English explained that he brought the snacks across uh, the ocean for his family in Israel. You know, uh, they just love uh, 650 pounds of it. Why did he fill two checked bags with fruit roll-ups? It has something to do with ice cream, the man's voice says. <laughs> so Israeli kids are into this TikTok craze in which they, I suppose, eat fruit roll-ups. By the way, you just looked at producer Quinn Waller when you said TikTok. Uh, yes, as I... <laughs> It's like uh, Israeli kids are into the, uh, <laughs> the Insta book, the Twittergram. Uh, they go on on the site, and there's some challenge involving fruit rollups. And Israel, startup nation itself, ran out of fruit rollups, which is not native. It does not grow on Israeli trees. You see, uh, and so we don't have the fruit rollups of our own. And so this one enterprising American <laughs> tried to smuggle 650 pounds. Of fruit roll-ups. My favorite part about the story is that apparently, like, the customs official asks if the man packed any clothes for himself. This isn't the question of, like, did you pack your bag yourself? This was, did you happen to pack any clothes? He says he has clothes in Israel. <laughs> so there's, like, nothing in these suitcases except for fruit roll-ups. You don't understand. I wear this. Uh, apricot <laughs> is for Shabbat. And the strawberry is for Tuesday. It's very good. I mean, I just love that, like, Israel is just just wants to be in on the latest TikTok craze. Like we are no better the Jewish nation than anyone else, right? Like they're still they still virality is virality, right? But this is America, Stephanie. Yes, and here in America, we are watching the NBA playoffs. Our pal Rabbi Ari Lamb has had some really really interesting takes on Twitter about some of the spiritual elements that have been coming out in the post-game interviews. So Leah, let's call him and see what this is all about. Rabbi Ari Lamb, welcome back. Thanks for picking up our call. Oh yeah, I'm just so excited. Like the bat signal went out and you got uh, me instead. <laughs> I'm looking at these guys speak after games. The quality of the discourse has gotten so incredibly deeply spiritual. These people talk about losing, about winning in ways that aren't just like, well, you know, we did our best. We played our hardest and we won or we lost. Like these really deep meditations on life and faith. First of all, am I crazy? And second of all, can you give us one shining example of that wonderful new element in play? You're exactly on the right track. The NBA is one of the last bastions of traditional faith in American life. And when you hear people complain, you know, as grouchy people want to do, that, well, you know, faith is declining in America. The young people don't care about religion anymore. It doesn't speak to anybody and then you have this pious is probably the, the wrong word, but you have this very like faithful, committed, aspirational group of people who are performing excellence at a very high level. And you have kind of a, a journalistic audience that with some very important exceptions, and there are important ones, is just not attuned to it and isn't interested in it. And then you have, I think, by and large, a young audience that isn't going to tear down the walls of the New York Times if they don't get this content. But when they hear the content, I think is inspired by it and interested in it. So that's kind of where we're at. So we're going to play uh, snippets from, uh, from a certain press conference you enjoy. Yeah, I'm curious for you. Do you view this season as a failure? <sighs> oh, my God. Uh, 
we, you asked me the same question last year, Eric. Okay, uh, do you get do you get a promotion every year on your job? No, right? So every year you work is a failure. Yes or no? No. Every every year you work, you work towards something, towards a goal, right? Which is to get a promotion, to be able to uh, take care of your family, to be able I don't know. Um, provide the house for them or take care of your parents. You work towards a goal. It's not a failure. It's steps to success. You know, and if you've never, I don't, know, I don't want to, I don't want to make it personal. So there's always steps to it. You know, Michael Jordan played 15 years, won six championship. The other nine years was a failure. That's what you're telling me. No, I'm asking you a question. Yes or no? Okay, exactly. So why you ask me that question? It's a wrong question. There's no failure in sports. You know, there's good days, bad days. Some days, some days you are able to uh, be successful, some days you're not. Some days it's your turn, some days it's not your turn. And that's what sports is about. You don't always win. Some other, other people's gonna win. And this year, somebody else is gonna win. Similar as that, we're gonna come back next year, try to be better, try to build good habits, try to uh, play better, not have a 10-day stretch with uh, playing bad basketball. You know, and hopefully we can win a championship. So 50 years from 1971 to 2021 that we didn't win a championship, it was 50 years of failures. No, it was not. It was steps to it, you know, and we were able to win one. Hopefully we can win another one. You know, I, sorry that I didn't want to make it personal because you asked me the same question last year. And uh, last year I was in the, in the uh, right um, mind space to answer the question back. What just happened here? Okay, so this is Giannis Tetacumpo. He is, I think, by wide acclaim, the best player in the NBA. He's one of the most transcendent basketball players of this generation. Now, Giannis is also, it should be noted, kind of widely known as an extremely good dude. You see something in this press conference that, forget sports press conferences, in the press conference genre as a whole, when have you ever seen a person apologize to a reporter for saying something potentially rude and offensive to them, even though it was not rude and offensive at all. But the fact that at the very end of the clip, Giannis apologizes, even just that is extraordinary. But then to meditate on the nature of success and failure. There is no failure in sports, he says. I mean, take the word sports and change it, but there is no failure in life. And it feels like, you know, it's the Baal Shem Tov talking. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> and the greatest thing to me was that the immediate reaction from some of the smartest sports fans that I follow on Twitter, that I read in, in the various news outlets, even ones who appreciated the point he was making, reflected, well, you know, of course the season was a failure, but, you know, and then kind of go on to laud Giannis. But to me, what made this clip so remarkable and that gives it that sort of mystical quality that you alluded to is that he's actually probing the very notions that we have of success and failure and thinking about whether it's even productive to talk in binaries like that and why not think about it as a journey. And yeah, that <laughs> that does remind me of a lot of, of a lot of stuff in our tradition. And the answer is, of course, that's true. There are better sages out there than the Greek freak. But it's important, I think, precisely because it's a low stakes form of getting to view excellence, meaning there's not a lot at stake in the NBA. Best case scenario, these five boys go home with a trophy and those five boys don't. But at the same time, you have a group of people who spend their entire lives trying to perfect a series of actions so that 
under the harshest, most oppressive conditions with millions of people screaming at them and dissecting their every move can perform those actions to perfection. And it's precisely that type of activity uh, and it's precisely that form of being that we all strive for in a healthy religious life. Like that's what I'm a, you know, put on the Orthodox rabbi hat for a second. That's what God demands of us. Like we actually have to review and study and learn as often as we can, as many times as we can, so that when actually something goes wrong on Shabbat, we know what to do because we've studied the word of God. In the immortal words of Rabbi Paul Rudd, it's called practicing Judaism because, you know, it's hard to be perfect at it. Exactly, exactly. And so the reason that following sports is, I think, such a profound activity is because usually if you want to learn the lesson about what it takes to be excellent, it's hard to do that when you're looking at things that are high stakes, that are actually high stakes, because it's easy to get jealous of people who are succeeding at a thing that really matters. The beautiful thing about sports is that because it doesn't matter in the metaphysical, you know, in like the sort of the teleological sense, we can just freely admire people who are doing amazing things. And so for somebody like Giannis, whose whole life has been dedicated to perfecting a set of skills and to pursuing a particular goal so that all of us can admire it for him to say, actually, here's how I think about what I'm doing. It's not a binary of success or failure. It's actually a journey. I think that's pretty amazing. You know, it's interesting because you've mentioned sort of Bible study. You've mentioned Ramadan. There are no, you know, there's no overtly Jewish displays necessarily of religiosity, but it does seem like there are some like overarching Jewish themes that we are seeing in what these guys are saying and doing. Is that, am I, am I like trying to make this too Jewish? No, I think that's exactly right. Meaning it's not a mistake to me that some of the greatest rabbinic sages, for example, of 20th century America were all huge baseball fans. I think there's something ennobling about watching sports and that, you know, I've kind of pinpointed what I think it is. I think it gives us an opportunity to admire excellence in a way that we should want to. And in addition to that, the multi-generational element of fandom is, I think, something deeply, deeply resonant with the Jewish tradition. I wouldn't say it's deeply Jewish, but it's deeply resonant with the Jewish tradition. Just the idea of sharing something really special with, you know, your mom or your dad or with your kids or with your siblings and just having fun at a game together or enjoying watching a game together. There's something incredibly beautiful about that. And it's something that the Jewish tradition does better, I think, than any other tradition I've ever experienced. You could think Passover, which we just had, uh, you know, about a month ago. The whole thing is structured around the verse, and you shall tell your child on that day, this is what happened. Sharing things with your children is so important. And the intergenerational aspect of sports fandom to me also is very, very important. Oh, Hashem. Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam, soon, uh, coming soon to an ESPN Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Look out, Bristol. Thank you so much. Give me my own show, boys. <laughs> we are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. 
The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Our Jewish guest this week is Gabby Deutsch. She's a Washington correspondent for Jewish Insider. She joined us to talk about her new five-part investigative series, Who Killed Kesher's Rabbi? Gabby tells us about reporting on the 40-year-old cold case. This is the murder of Rabbi Philip Rabinowitz. It was a shocking tragedy that devastated a tight-knit Orthodox community and that to this day remains unsolved. Here's Gabby Deutsch. Gabby Deutsch, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. Big Unorthodox fan here. So tell us how you came to uncover this story when you first learned about it and when you decided that you needed to devote a full five-part series to it, you know, give it that full investigative journalistic treatment. Sure. I think like a lot of things, as you probably know, it started as something that I had in the back of my head that I couldn't stop thinking about for, for many months. My my boss goes to the synagogue to Kesher Israel and had been there two years ago on this rabbi's yard site on the, the anniversary of his death. And he and I were just chatting about it a couple of days later. And I thought it seemed really interesting and started Googling and, and poking around online and found it very curious that a rabbi who was such a prominent figure in the community, in such a, an important community, was killed in his home and no one was ever arrested for it. That just struck me as, as strange and, and surprising. So then over the course, really, of the next two years, this was two years ago now, just started reaching out to people in the, the community and started doing research. And after a while, I realized, okay, this is an insane story. And it's something that I, I should be taking seriously beyond just uh, having it as my little hobby that I Google at night when I'm bored. Here's this rabbi, Holocaust survivor, little man with this charming, you know, strong Yiddish accent, Rabbi Rabinowitz, beloved if a bit misunderstood. First of all, you have this incredible description of his daughter's wedding. Take us to the day of this wedding, which is the most heartbreaking thing I think I've ever heard. Yeah, so the, the rabbi, Rabbi Rabinowitz, as you said, he died in, in 1984. And six years earlier, he had two children, uh, both of whom are, are still alive. And they both got married in, in the same summer. And really capping off the, the summer, his daughter's wedding was happening in D.C. So it was a really big synagogue affair with family and folks from the synagogue coming in. And, and at the, the Deccan, which in a traditional Jewish wedding is before the ceremony, um, when the, the bride-to-be is sitting with her mother and soon-to-be mother-in-law, and other women are waiting in line to, to talk to her, to really receive a, a blessing from her, is, is what happens traditionally. The bride, Miriam, who, who is this rabbi's daughter, her mother stands up and just falls to the floor uh, in the middle of the ceremony when there are hundreds of people around. And she's taken quickly away by, by paramedics. No one really knew what happened, but there was a question about whether she was alive, whether she had passed away. And once she gets to the hospital, it's pretty clear that there's nothing doctors can do for her. So the bride's mother passed away on her wedding day, minutes before she's to walk down the aisle to the chuppah. And Rabbi Rabinowitz, not just her father, but also the rabbi, who is the, the religious authority here, consults with other rabbis, with 
friends of his and basically makes the decision to do the wedding after his wife has died and the daughter doesn't know and he doesn't tell her. So throughout the whole night, people are dancing and celebrating and he's sitting at his table and essentially telling his daughter, I'm tired, you go enjoy yourself. And she asks him, uh, and I heard the story from a number of people, she says to him, you know, where's mom? How is she doing? And he says, she's in God's hands. So he, he's not lying to her, but he doesn't tell her that her mother has already passed away. Uh, and then the, the funeral is held the next morning, the morning after her wedding. So now fast forward six years, and this young bride is now a young mother. She just had a baby. Rabbi Rabinowitz is about to officiate over that baby's naming in just a matter of days. One day, a few congregants show up at Shul and, and find what? This is an Orthodox synagogue. So you have people who are going to Shul three times a day to for different minions. And in the morning, a number of people show up for, for the morning service. And this is a synagogue in Georgetown and in the fanciest, most beautiful part of Washington. But at that point in the early 80s, the Orthodox community in Washington had basically all moved out to the suburbs in Maryland. So they were struggling to make a minion every morning. And, and that day, only nine men showed up for the morning service. This was a, a morning in, in February. And the rabbi always either showed up or made sure that there were enough people to have the, the necessary 10 men for the service. And so that morning they were calling him and, and he wasn't answering, but they ultimately went on with the service uh, because these men had to, to get to big, important Washington jobs. And then afterward, a group of them decided to, to walk over to his home, less than a 10 minute walk away to check on him. And when they get there, they find that the, the door is unlocked and, and just slightly open. And it's one man who is a relatively young guy, new to Washington, and he had gone over with a couple of, of retirees who were older and not in the best of health and feeling that something is wrong. He says to them, sort of worried about them, you stay out here. So this man opens the door and then walks in and sees the rabbi study and sees the rabbi lying face down on his carpet. And he had been stabbed several times. And it turns out that he had been killed the night before. And of course, the, the question at this point is what happened to him? I don't want to give too much away. The full series is live at Jewish Insider, but what happens next is sort of weird, right? This is a tight-knit community, a rabbi who is, by all accounts, extremely beloved, and, you know, the community is devoted to him. He is murdered, and there really is no no answer. There's no there's no resolution for, for their community or for his family. What happens next? At that point, of course, no one knew that it would be now 39 years later, and no one has been arrested. So there was... A lot of hope among family members and among congregants that this case would be solved. And that's really what the detectives were were telling people for months. They thought, this is a really well-known, a beloved figure in the community. Of course, we're going to, to find out who did this. And for people in, in that community, they trusted the police. They had never been through something like this, of course. And the investigation over the next few months played out with interviews of several suspects and the police were spending time at the synagogue. They were there for, for security, but also really to see who was coming. And without revealing too much about who the, the main suspect was, there was a feeling among a, a lot of people in the community that at the rabbi's funeral, which happened the day after his body was found, a standing room only crowd at the synagogue, people spilling onto the street. There was a feeling by some of the, the people who were there that the rabbi's killer was 
among them that day, but it was someone who he knew, who he was close to, who had at times been part of the synagogue community. Now, when you start obsessing over this true crime, horrendous murder, what's step one? Where do you begin this journey? Step one for me was something that I think is is familiar to all journalists. I sent an email requesting comment to the Washington Metropolitan Police Department saying, I just read about this case that happened 30 odd years ago. Are you still working on it? What happened? Can you offer a comment on, on the state of this investigation? Thinking that they would say, of course, we're not working on this. And they wrote back and, and said, essentially, it's an open case because murder cases generally are not, quote unquote, closed by law enforcement if no one is ever charged with the crime and saying that they welcome any leads and are still investigating the case. So that that surprised me because this was nearly 40 years later and I, I had to assume that there were not police officers or detectives who were actually investigating this at the time. And so that struck a chord with me where it just, it piqued my interest. And I thought if, if they're still thinking about this, or at least they say they are, there probably are other people who are too. So what's really fascinating about this community, aside from, of course, this horrible story, it's the only Orthodox synagogue in, in downtown Washington. There's, there's also a Chabad now, but for a very long time, this was, if you were an Orthodox Jew who lived in D.C., this Kesher Israel is where you went. So senators and writers and all kinds of notable Jewish figures uh, have, have prayed there over the years, and they remain a very, very tight-knit community. So I started sending couple emails to loose contacts there. And frankly, I was really surprised to tap into this group of people who had been close to the rabbi. And I felt almost like when I got in touch with some of them for the first time, just for early conversations, I didn't even really have a project. It was all very nebulous. It was almost like they were unburdening themselves. And I would have these hour, hour and a half long conversations with people who had been going to the synagogue for 50, 60 years. And really still feel the, the gaping wound of the, the death of their beloved rabbi. Something that was interesting to me about this piece is how much this story is shaped by, you know, its location. This is a D.C. synagogue. You'd get visiting dignitaries. This wasn't like any other city in many ways, right? Could you give us a little bit of the lay of the land at the time and maybe even now of how it sort of is part of the sort of political complex there as, as almost everything is in that city? I think D.C. is absolutely central to this when looking at the people who have gone to the synagogue, which it was founded over 100 years ago in 1911. And then in the 50s and 60s, when DC, like so many other cities, was experiencing a lot of crime problems and violence and certainly problems stemming from, from racism in the city as well. And people began moving out to the suburbs. Kashmir Israel was a big victim of that in a sense that it had been a very vibrant synagogue. And then basically almost everyone there moved away. So you had like the day the rabbi was killed when there were just a handful of people coming in and it was really sort of hanging on by a thread. But you had this DC crowd who was there at the time, the most notable congregate who people really attribute with a big part of that renaissance was Herman Woke, the, the writer who has written several award-winning beloved novels. And he was kind of the first intellectual figure at, at Cashier. But then over the years, you also had Senator Joe Lieberman, who was a senator from Connecticut, who is Orthodox. And, and when he first moved to Washington in the late 80s, he made Kesher his home. And then when Joe Lieberman was the Democratic vice presidential candidate in 2000, you have pictures of the synagogue 
on newspaper front pages all over the country. The synagogue actually has kept all of those in, in a box uh, to this day. And so now the people who, who make up the synagogue, there are former ambassadors and law professors and lobbyists. And this rabbi, Rabbi Rabinowitz, who really built all of that, was someone who didn't buy into any of that whatsoever. He called any lawyer who was at the synagogue a prominent Washington lawyer, really, to, to make fun of the, the conventions in Washington. And that says a lot about how the synagogue was built. But you have this place that's sort of a refuge where the people who go there are both Democrats and Republicans. And even today, you have the whole range of political views. And I talk to people who really say that that's the only place in Washington where they can go to have a conversation with someone who is across the aisle from them or across the pew from them in this case. And the person who, who really did all of that was not interested in the politics, didn't care about it, was just there for, for the Jewish piece. Um, and I think that says a lot. Did the trauma bring the community closer together? At the time, absolutely. And I, I think here you have to put this in the context of, frankly, the next trauma at the synagogue, which is the, the next long-term rabbi who came in after Rabbi Rabinowitz was... Rabbi Barry Ferndale, who right. roughly a decade ago was arrested for on, on voyeurism charges for essentially recording women secretly in, in the mikvah and the ritual bath. And so you have these two horrible, just crazy cases right next to each other where this beloved rabbi is killed. And then the person who comes in after them to try and fix things up and bring the community together ends up going to prison. And so when I would ask people that question, what was it like in the, in the days after Rabbi Rabinowitz was killed? Did people come together? They would often point to what happened after Rabbi Ferndell was arrested later as sort of a counterpoint, that that was a moment that threatened to tear the synagogue apart. But when Rabbi Rabinowitz was killed, it really brought people together in a way where they had no one else to go to but each other. And I think he, he was someone who a lot of people viewed as a father figure. It was a lot of people in their 20s who were coming to Washington after college and looking for community and meaning, frankly, at a, a very tumultuous time of life. And still today, the story is really passed down where you have people who are now at the synagogue and in their 20s coming to Washington and they learn about Rabbi Rabinowitz. He is mentioned often at the synagogue um, and he is really in this mythology of, of the place that lives on. Something really interesting about this is is the question of being open as a synagogue and as a rabbi. And in light of the fact that a lot of people thought that, you know, based on the details of the murder, it was someone he knew. He opened the door for them. There were a lot of clues there. And it sort of raises this question of how open can a synagogue be? Can you tell us a little bit about some of like your broader learnings on that and how we sort of see that play out today in terms of security and, and welcoming and the dueling polls and priorities. He was known to be an incredibly generous man, and he would welcome into the synagogue homeless people, people with mental illness who behaved in a way that was at times disruptive to, to other people in the community and really lived those values and sometimes would allow homeless people to sleep at his home or on the floor of the social hall in the synagogue in the colder months. And this sometimes came into conflict with some of the other people in the synagogue who maybe felt uncomfortable with with those folks, but he never he never wavered in that decision to to help people and really, in a sense, put his life on the line for that belief, which I think unfortunately is is what ended up happening. That question about 
how open a synagogue should be. It was it was different back then. It was only 40 years ago, but of the many, many people I spoke to, none of them said that they thought anti-Semitism had anything to do with the death of this rabbi, which just struck me in 2023 as a crazy thought, because now, mm -hmm. God forbid, if something like that were to happen, it would be the first place your mind would go, which we saw last year when the, the community members in Texas were, were held hostage at their synagogue. And that rabbi had asked similar questions of, here's a person I don't know who showed up at our door. Should I trust him? Should I allow, allow him in? And he, he made, of course, the, the wrong choice in that decision. And it's obviously a, a question with, with no easy answers, but in some ways it also shows just how complicated it is where thinking about this threat of anti-Semitism and sort of violence outside the community directed at the Jewish community, it, it doesn't always get at how complicated it is when thinking about who do we open our doors to and should we be making the decision to close our doors when it's a, you know, a Jewish value to be open and welcoming to, to everyone. Gabby Deutsch, thank you so much for being on the podcast. The full story, Who Killed Kesher's Rabbi, is available at jewishinsider.com. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. J. Crew, today we are sharing the second installment of our series, The Archive, an exploration into the unbelievable collection of the National Library of Israel, where so many of the greatest treasures of the Jewish people lie undiscovered until we came in to really bring them to the fore. And today we are traveling back in time to 12th century Spain when a little, you know, inquisition propelled a young man. A young physician slash writer slash philosopher slash all-time goat genius named Moshe ben Maimon or Maimonides or Rambam to go on a host of adventures that eventually would give the Jewish people some of their greatest wisdom and textual treasures. Have a listen. He is probably one of the most important and famous figures in uh, Judaism, uh, definitely from the last thousand years or so. I can point out at the beginning, uh, not everybody agreed with him. And in some places in Europe, people were very much against some of his writings. But today, none of that exists anymore. Everyone, everywhere, accepts what uh, the Rambam wrote. And um, as we said, it's studied everywhere till this very day. I'm Leah Leibowitz. Welcome back to The Archive, an exploration of the National Library of Israel. I'll be guiding you across history and across the globe, across time and space, on a journey to discover the treasures of this library's amazing collection. Now, you may have heard of the Rambam before. He's also known as Maimonides. This is who Daniel Lipson, one of the National Library's leading librarians, was talking to me about. You may have also read some of Rambam's work like, oh, I don't know, Guide to the Perplexed or his magnum opus, the Mishnah Torah. But as these were all written in the 12th century Spain, mind you, long before this Spanish flamenco music we have playing in the background became popular, but please reserve your judgment. Chances are you probably haven't done what I had the pleasure of doing looking at the Rambam's work firsthand 
And by that, I mean this actual handwritten book. We're sitting by a very special pillow. It looks like the kind of body pillow that you know pregnant women sometimes have. And on top of it is not a baby, but probably the most precious item here in this collection. What am I looking at? You're looking at one part, one out of six parts, of the commentary of Maimonides on the Mishnah. The Mishnah is divided into six separate parts, six orders, six darim. And this is one out of six. Two parts, two starim are here in the National Library. Three other parts are in Oxford. The last part, Sedot Teharot, is missing till this very day. We don't know where it is. Now, just to be clear, we're not talking the kind of book you could buy on Amazon. We're talking about this is the Rambam's own hand. Right. It's not a copy of Maimonides' own commentary. It's him himself. He actually wrote it. Seeing Maimonides' work firsthand is a really big deal. Because Maimonides is a really big deal. He's the GOAT, the greatest of all time, the most influential Jewish scholar, the one name you probably know, even if you don't know a lot of Jewish names. And it's especially a big deal for someone like me, because I love studying Talmud. And anyone who studies Talmud at one point or another is going to come across Rambam. Now, the Mishnah, as you may know, is part of the Talmud. The other part, loosely speaking, is the Gemara, which means that what I was looking at is actual commentary on the Mishnah by Maimonides himself. Today, this commentary is essential reading for any serious Talmudic scholar and also for non-serious Talmudic scholars like me. And it was this that Mr. Lipson and I were staring at in absolute awe. But part of what makes Maimonides such a big deal is also that he was more than just a religious scholar. He became so popular and famous because he dealt with a little bit of everything. He wrote a lot of Jewish philosophy and science as well. So he was what we'd call a Renaissance man, knowing so much about what was going on both religiously and scientifically and what was going on during his time. He served everyone, the Jewish community and the Sultan as well. That is not to say that in his time he didn't have detractors, like the Ramban or Nachmanides, another extremely influential Spanish rabbi from the same era and, truth be told, kind of my favorite. There are many disputes between him and the Ramban, Nachmanides. As opposed to others like the Ramban, like Nachmanides, his philosophy is more rationalist. And where others may be talking about miracles and angels and things going on up in heaven, he gives a slightly more rationalist interpretation to things, and it's widely accepted. So we were looking at one part of Maimonides' commentary on the Mishnah. But the content of the page is just one part of the story. The other part is how these books came to be in the first place. The Rambam was born in Córdoba, a city in the south of present-day Spain, in the year 1138. Back then, the country was under Muslim rule, and for about 300 years prior, Spanish Jews lived in what is now considered a golden age. But for those of you privy to Jewish history, 
these golden ages, they usually come to an end sooner or later. And when Maimonides was about 20 years old, a new Islamic ruler took power and gave Jews like Maimonides a quite simple choice. Convert, leave, or die. Maimonides, well, he had things to write. So he packed up and left. He was young and full of wanderlust. And, well, he wandered around for about 10 years. And it was actually during this period of wandering that he wrote the commentary on the Mishnah, which is what we were looking at today. And while the Rambam eventually arrived in Morocco, he just couldn't stay put. The persecution had gotten him hooked on the exilic lifestyle of the wandering Jew. So he left Morocco, taking his commentary on the Mishnah with him. And he traveled to, then, Palestine, where he would eventually be buried and made sure to stop and pray at Harabait, the Temple Mount. And finally, he settled in Egypt and spent the rest of his life as a rabbi slash doctor slash community leader slash writer, of course. Okay, so that's how the commentary on the Mishnah got to Egypt. But how did it get back here to Israel? And it's kept in Egypt for many years until one of his descendants travels to Syria and he takes it with him. During the 1630s, a chaplain for the English factory traveled to Aleppo. And he so remember that there were six parts to the commentary on the mission. Lipson told me the story of how each of them ended up getting rescued from Aleppo, where the Rambam's family had brought them to. Three parts were purchased by Oxford. One, as we were previously told, is missing till this day. And as for the two manuscripts at the library, they ended up in the hands of... Solomon Sassoon, who was a very famous Jewish collector of, of books and of manuscripts. A few years later, his descendants decided to sell his collection. And in 1975, these manuscripts and others were put up for auction in Switzerland. Now, the National Library and Government of Israel were very interested in buying these, but they cost so much money that no one had at the time. The Minister of Education published in a newspaper and other places asking people to donate money to try and contribute something for the purchase <laughs> of these manuscripts. And Jews from Israel and around the world donated money. It was the first crowdfunding yes, campaign. Yes, it was. And it's interesting to think that this manuscript is here in a library because people rich and poor from around the world decided it was important enough to give some money. And that's how it was purchased and brought here to the library in the 1970s. And Israel is a natural home for these manuscripts. The Rambam was, of course, a Jewish scholar, and he wrote these commentaries in Hebrew, I think? So that's a very interesting question, because sometimes I show, maybe not the manuscript itself, rather the scan, to groups that come here or to students, and I tell them, can you read what it says? And they start by reading the Mishnah. The Mishnah is in Hebrew, that's no problem. They read it, and then they carry on. At the end of the Mishnah, there's a little gap. The Hebrew letters continue, but they can't figure out the words. The interpretation itself, the commentary, Rambam's commentary, is written in Hebrew letters, but in Arabic, which was a language everybody spoke at the time, or everyone in Egypt and that area would speak, and they could understand it. So it's in a, a Jewish Arabic or a Hebrew Arabic. If I had to sit down and learn Rambam's commentary on the Mishnah, it would be nice to glance at this, but uh, this isn't the best way to learn it. A, because it's written in, in a language that I can't understand. But today, if I'd have to learn it, I'd prefer to use the latest edition with the best print. 
Lipson is a treasure hunter at the library. He loves to reveal tidbits like this and to find all the other little secrets of the collection. And one secret that relates to a lot of these manuscripts is, are they real? Are they legit? Are they really written by the person the library thinks they are? There are, of course, academic disputes on this. Uh, some say that it was dictated to a student of his, but uh, most opinions are that this is actually his own hand writing, his autograph. One of the reasons that we know that it's his, apart from by comparing the handwriting to other known manuscripts of the Rambam, is because of these lines that have been crossed out. There are many uh, lines crossed out and annotations along the side. If you ask yourself, who can cross out a line from the Rambam's writing? The answer is only he himself. I may disagree with things that people write, but I can't cross them out and say that they weren't written. They are written. So only he can actually make these corrections. At times, the Rambam returned to his manuscript and made some mistakes and he crosses out some lines and adds a few words. So this is the kind of work which he kept on doing and revising and coming back to during quite some time. And an interesting point is that we see he was asked by students a question and they couldn't understand how the Rambam in one place, in the Yadah Chazakah, writes one thing. And when they look at his commentary on the Mishnah, the book we have in front of us, he writes something slightly different. And he answers them and he explains that both manuscripts that you saw, both the Yadah Chazakah and my commentary on the Mishnah, are correct. But what you saw was a commentary before I revised it, before I made corrections. And you saw the mistake or something that I decided to change after a few years. So both of them are right. But we learned from this response of this question that was asked that he actually carried on making little corrections here and there over the years. As many listeners of Unorthodox already know, I've had my own Jewish journey over the past few years. A large part of this journey has been making my own changes and corrections as I go along. And I've done so, like so many of us, by climbing on the shoulders of giants like Maimonides, bringing ancient Jewish wisdom into the 21st century. Lipson is inspired as well, getting to be near the presence of this master day in, day out. Sitting here next to it, next to something that was written in the hand of the man himself, one of the most important Jewish scholars and leaders and rabbis, is truly profound and an amazing feeling. The journey, the odyssey of this manuscript from around the world, which was written first in Fez in Morocco and, and afterwards in, in Egypt, it was taken to Syria, to Aleppo and to Damascus. Many years later, it was auctioned in Switzerland. Some of the parts ended up in Oxford, but the one that we have here today came back to Israel and now is in Jerusalem here in the National Library of Israel. Perhaps this is the story of the wandering Jew, if you like, all here within a very important document, a very important manuscript by one of the leaders of, uh, of Judaism. Even our books wander. Definitely. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I'm Leah Leibowitz, signing off from the National Library of Israel. Until next time. The 
archive is created with the support of the National Library of Israel. To learn more about this and other items in the collection of the National Library of Israel, and you absolutely should because their displays online are amazing, go to nli.org.il. Time for some mazel tubs. I, I want to kick things off. I have a shout out uh, to listener Samantha, who I got to meet this week. You know who you are. Um, it was really nice to, to chat with you. And I have a farewell to Rabbi Harold Kushner, who died recently at the age of 88. He was a conservative rabbi, but also a best-selling author for books like When Bad Things Happen to Good People, in which he drew on his own experiences with grief and loss and tragedy and really, really helped a lot of people. And so we say, Baruch Dayan Emet. I wish to bring things down about 6,000 notches. I should have said 6 million notches. <laughs> um, this Saturday is the Eurovision Song Contest, <laughs> which uh, fans of the show would know is uh, something akin to elections slash war slash inquisition. Meets, it's like risk with singing. Meets exodus. It is a war between nations in which only one remains triumphant. Israelis set more store by this than any other thing in life ever. We have won this contest several times. And this Saturday, our very own Noa Kirel will compete with her song, a Unicorn. So to her and to the entire nation of Israel and to the entire Jewish people, we say batzlacha. And if we don't win, it's just because of sheer anti-Semitism. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Botnick, with Liel Leibovitz and soon to be an amazing new co-host. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, and Daron Risquet. Administrative support from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. You can follow Unorthodox on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search Unorthodox Podcast. We have amazing swag, including a tie-dyed baseball hat. That's the Stephanie and the, the Liel bucket hat. So you can get all of that and more at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our new logo is by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music after all these years is still by the band Golem. You can send us snail mail at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 10001. Send us emails and voice memos at unorthodox at tabamag.com. Tell us about all the amazing Jewish wedding canopies you've seen in your, in your wedding going days. Or leave us a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. We'll see you back here next week for our extra special annual conversion episode. Until then, shalom, friends. Can you say unicorn again? Unicorn. <laughs> unicorn. <laughs>